Uh, take your uh, Bibles and turn to Second uh, uh, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. And I trust as you came in today, you also picked up a uh, copy of the uh, sermon notes, which were, would be the same as last week, since we have not yet concluded chapter one. And the notes that you have in your hand uh, deal with the entirety of chapter one. Now, last Sunday, we uh, began uh, our study of Second Thessalonians in which we looked at the historical background to the book and the first four verses of chapter 1. Now, let's briefly review what we covered last Sunday before we move into looking, examining uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 this morning. The city of Thessalonica was the capital of Greek Macedonia, and we saw that it was one of the most prominent cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, Because of the city's intense loyalty to Rome, Caesar had granted the city of Thessalonica the most favored status as a free city, Uh, the benefits being exemption from Roman taxation, no Roman troops being stationed inside the city walls, and the freedom to exercise self-government. We discovered in Acts 17 that the church was birthed in persecution, being accused of living their lives contrary to the laws of Caesar to follow another king, Jesus. And of course, this did not go over very well in a city that was so loyal uh, to Rome and to Caesar. Uh, The apostle Paul, who brought the message of Christ to the city and established the church at Thessalonica, was actually forced to flee under the cover of night because of the persecution. Uh, After Paul's departure... He wrote two letters to the church uh, contained in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, in your notes, you'll see the purpose of 2nd Thessalonians. And the purpose of 2nd Thessalonians was to instruct the Thessalonians on how to respond to three issues that were disturbing the peace of the church. And each of these issues correspond to the three chapters of the book. In chapter 1, the issue is persecution, a persecution. After Paul's departure, the persecution had not eased, it had actually intensified. And apparently they were asking, why do we have to suffer so much? I mean, where is God's justice in our mistreatment? And when will deliverance come? In chapter 2, The issue is false teaching. Uh, We saw last Sunday in the very first two verses of chapter 2 that false teachers had circulated a forged document, supposedly written by Paul, indicating that the church had missed the rapture and they were in the day of the Lord. They were in that seven-year tribulation period, which was contrary to Paul's earlier teaching in 1 Thessalonians, 
And this left the church just in a state of, uh, of confusion and anxiety. In chapter 3, the issue is what we could call the idlers. Uh, there was a group, probably a small group, but never, nonetheless a group in the church who believed that they could just simply stop working and wait for the return of Christ. As a result, they became a tremendous burden to the rest of the church who were having to support them, who were having to feed them. And these folks were using all their free time to meddle in everybody else's business, and they were sowing discord uh, in the church. Now, look at the overview of Second Thessalonians, where I find it interesting. Paul takes these three dangers, persecution, uh, false teaching, and the idlers, and he actually uses them to his advantage to point the Thessalonians uh, to Christ and his return. In chapter 1, we see that Paul uses the false teaching uh, or the persecution, the persecution to provide comfort, to provide comfort from the hope of Christ's return. So in chapter 1, Paul uses their persecution to provide comfort from the hope of Christ's return. In chapter 2, Paul uses the false teaching to bring correction on the time of Christ's return. So chapter 2, Paul uses the false teaching to bring correction on the time of Christ's return. And in chapter 3, Paul uses the error of the idlers to give a command in the light of Christ's return. So again, chapter 1 will find comfort from the hope of Christ's return that gives us that power to persevere in the midst of persecution. In chapter 2, correction on the time of Christ's return. And then chapter 3, command in light of Christ's return. We then turned our attention to chapter 1 to see our comfort uh, from the hope of Christ's return. How do we find strength? to endure the persecutions, the afflictions, and the trials of this world. Well, not by looking for relief from this world, but by looking to Christ. Notice in your notes the first point under comfort from the hope of Christ's return. Christ provides grace to endure in the present. And that was our focus last Sunday. How The Lord Jesus Christ, as we look to Him, provides grace to endure in the present. Jesus Christ provides the grace we need now to endure the world's trials as we wait for our future escape from this world at the return of Christ. As the Thessalonians, as we saw last week, as they turn from their adversity to focus on Christ. As they learned to stop whining and to start shining, Paul thanked God for three wonderful things happening in their lives. He said, I thank God that you're, notice in your notes, that your faith is increasing, that your faith is increasing. Look at the very first part of verse 3 in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. And we looked at that Greek word that's uh, it's translated in our English Bibles enlarged, and it says, it, your faith has grown beyond anything we would have expected. 
It has grown beyond measure. And then notice the second thing. He says, I thank God that your love is growing. The latter part of verse 3. Notice it says, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. So he thanks God that, yes, your faith is increasing, your love is growing. But one more thing, that your hope is persevering. That your hope is persevering. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we, all are, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. If you want to know the type of church that makes Jesus proud, that makes him happy, there you have it. A church that is growing in faith in him, love for one another, and hope. Hope in the midst of difficulty as we await our future Savior, our, our Savior returning for us. Now, that word perseverance in verse 4, uh, we sort of focused on that. It's a key word, hupopone. The word refers to a patient and courageous enduring of trouble. Uh, the word literally means sustaining hope under difficulty. It is looking forward, even in the midst of hard times, with joyful hope and expectation. Well, what is the basis of this patience? What is the basis of this courage, of this joy, of this hope, even in the midst of the greatest of difficulties? Well, for the answer, turn your notes over to the uh, back side, uh, top of the page, to so the second way we find comfort from the hope of Christ's return. He promises reward to enjoy in the future. He promises reward to enjoy in the future. So as we look to Christ in His return, we not only find Christ's grace to endure our present trials, but we also discover the promise of future reward that encourages us as we live through these difficult days. Uh, read with me now. Let's read this section, First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians chapter 1, let me begin reading at verse 5, and we'll read through verse 10. It says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So what does God promise when Jesus returns? Fundamentally, two things, and get them down in your notes. Vindication for believers and retribution for unbelievers. That's the heart of these verses, verses 5 through 10. 
that God promises at the return of Christ vindication for believers, for His followers, but retribution, judgment for unbelievers. There will be a payday someday, a day of reckoning and accounting when every good deed will be rewarded and every wrong will be judged. First, look at the vindication for believers. Look in your Bibles at verse 5. Verse 5. He says, this is the plain indication of God's judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are indeed uh, suffering. Fascinating verse. When it says, this is the plain indication of God's judgment, what is the this referring to? Well, it's obvious that this is referring back to the previous verse, verse 4. And verse 4 speaks of what? Their perseverance in the midst of persecution and afflictions. Their perseverance in suffering. Now, Paul is saying that their perseverance in the midst of their sufferings is the plain indication, it is the proof, it is the evidence that God is just, that God's judgment is right. Now, let's be very honest right here. We do not typically look at our suffering as evidence that God's judgment is right. True? I mean, let's just be honest. When we suffer a persecution or affliction, what do we most often do? We complain. You know, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God do something about this? We tend to actually question the justice of God, the fairness of God. So we need to ask the question, in what sense do we see in the suffering of God's people, the evidence that God is just, that His judgment is right. Well, again, look again at verse 5 one more time. He says this, their their perseverance in suffering is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment. And now notice, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. See, the point of verse 5 is persecution and affliction is evidence that God's judgment is right because God uses the persecution. He uses the affliction to prove that we are worthy of entrance into God's kingdom. See, God allows the devil a measure of freedom to afflict us. And he gives our persecutors some rope to hang us. Why? To prove the authenticity of our faith, love, and hope in Jesus Christ. That faith, love, and hope that we saw in verses 3 and 4. Now, let's make sure there's no misunderstanding. So, listen very, very carefully. When it says we are considered worthy of the kingdom of God, it is not saying, it is not saying that by our perseverance in suffering, we earn entrance into God's kingdom. No, it's not saying that. Salvation, as we know, is a free gift. It can't be earned. It's not deserved. 
It's a gift from God that we receive through faith by grace. So it's not saying that by our perseverance and suffering we earn entrance into God's kingdom, but what it is saying, it proves that we are the real deal. That's what it's saying. Now, this should not be difficult to understand. What is at the core of every true believer's heart? Think about that. Talking about an authentic believer, one who has encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation, conversion, and transformation. What is at the very core of every believer's heart? Belief in Jesus, true, belief, trust in Jesus, love for Jesus, and hope in Jesus. That's the essence of a follower of Christ. I have placed my trust in him to love him by following him, and I've placed my hope in him to secure not only abundant life here, but eternal life in the future. Now, think about this. Now, think about this now. A person is only willing to suffer for what he truly believes in. He's only willing to suffer for who he loves most. He's only willing to suffer for what he hopes for. Therefore, there is absolutely nothing, nothing like the test of suffering to reveal or to prove what a person truly believes in, who that person loves, what he is hoping for. Take your Bibles and turn to 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 to see an example of this. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to go back to 2 Thessalonians, so keep your finger there. But 1 Peter chapter 1. And I just want us to see in this passage how God uses persecution, how He uses affliction, how He uses suffering to prove the authenticity of our faith. That we truly believe in Jesus, we truly love Him, and we're placed, we've placed our hope in Him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me begin reading at verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Seems like a very odd verse. Why would you rejoice while you are being distressed by various trials? Well, he tells you in verse 7, that there's purpose. You could put there, in order that, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then don't miss verses 8 and 9. And though you have not seen him, you what? You love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Notice, in this passage, what is precious to God? It is the proof of your faith. 
And how is your faith proved? How is it put on display as to being authentic, the real deal? God allows you to go through the refiner's fire. He allows you to go through pressure, through difficulty, things that stress you out. Because when a person is squeezed, what's on the inside is going to what? Come out. Now, it doesn't mean that a believer is not going to struggle I love the honesty of the Bible. Notice, you are stressed out. I mean, it says you are distressed. You're struggling. But in the midst of that struggle, when you get down to the very core of your being, what comes out? I believe in Jesus. And I love my Lord. And my hope is in Him. And that's what you see here. He says... Though you have not even seen him, as you've gone through this adversity, you've demonstrated that you believe in him. You demonstrate that you love him. You have demonstrated that your hope is in him. And that's why even in the midst of the pain, you can rejoice. Knowing that you have a future that's going to be very, very better. Because help is on the way in the person of Jesus Christ. So since, now listen now, since perseverance and faithfulness in suffering proves the authenticity of a person's faith, well then it also declares us to be what? Worthy of entrance into God's kingdom. I mean, if that perseverance in the suffering proves the authenticity of my faith in Jesus, my love for Jesus, my hope in Jesus, then it also declares me to be one of His and worthy of entrance into His kingdom. There's also the thought, and I don't want us to miss this as well, there's also the thought that perseverance and suffering not only proves the authenticity of our faith, love, and hope, but it also what? Refines strengthens, develops our faith, love, and hope to further prepare us, to fit us for God's kingdom. See, what is our destiny as believers? Our destiny is to reign, is to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're going to reign with Him throughout all eternity, there needs to be a compatibility of character. Therefore, God uses perseverance and suffering as a refining fire to burn away the dross and to temper Christ's character in us. In Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, we read, listen now, just listen. We can rejoice too. When we run into problems and trials, well, why can we rejoice when we run head on into problems and trials. He says, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. We're made more like Jesus. Now, one more thing we need to remember. Jesus taught, clearly taught, that suffering was the inescapable path to glory. In other words, there is no glory 
without suffering. That it is the only way to the throne. It's, it's through the cross. Uh, Jesus said in John uh, chapters 15 and 16, the world, the world that hated me without cause is going to hate you. The world that persecuted me is going to persecute you. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. He said at the very end of chapter 16, in this world, you will have what? Tribulation. In other words, this world's not going to be kind to you. Don't look for kindness from this world. Paul said in Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in Romans 8, 17, Paul wrote, we suffer with him, with Jesus. Why? In order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, take your Bible and turn it over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Great, great cross-reference. I want to get, matter of fact, I want to give you several along this point. This fact that suffering is the inescapable path to glory. And so you can know if you're suffering that glory is going to follow. And that gives you the encouragement to persevere, to remain faithful to God in the suffering. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me begin. Well, let's just read verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, 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 do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, remember, Peter is writing to a group of believers who, who are experiencing intense persecution. I mean, they, these folks are hurting. They're struggling. And he says, beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may what? Rejoice with exultation. He says, to the degree that you suffer with Him, you're to rejoice, knowing that as you persevere, there will be reward. You'll look for it in this life, but what? When Jesus returns at the revelation of Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I think this is the uh, favorite verse of one of our elders here at the church, uh, Terry Hathaway. Chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. And one of my favorite passages along this line, turn to one more. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And you probably know this is one of my favorite passages. I, I allude to it often. I want to focus on a couple of verses towards the end of the chapter, but you need to see the context. 
It's, it's so important to see the context. Look at verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, he's saying that if you're a believer, that you possess the treasure of what? Jesus. That your body is literally what? The temple of God. And as a believer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know that light and knowledge and glory of God in the face of Christ. But notice verse 7. But, but, we have this treasure, this treasure of Jesus in earthen vessels, or we could say very frail clay pots that are susceptible to breaking, to cracking. And he explains this. He says that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. He says we are afflicted in every way. That word afflicted is thalipsis. It means intense pressure to the point of agonizing pain. The, the best English word that we have is stress. And Paul says in this life, Notice, even this champion for Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, totally committed to Jesus, he says, I'm continually stressed out. That's the reality of living on planet Earth, on a fallen planet that has rebelled against God. But he says, but, but I'm not crushed. And he says, yes, I'm perplexed. That word perplexed in the Greek text, it literally means without a way. Uh, the word carries the thought that I, I hit a situation, a time of adversity, a time of difficulty, affliction, and I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue whether I should just blindly run forward, whether I should retreat, whether I should duck down and hide. I don't have a clue. And also with this word is not only are you confused and perplexed about what you should do, but there's, there's that sense of embarrassment that, you know, shouldn't I know better? Shouldn't I have a little greater degree of understanding and wisdom and, and know what I should do? So he says, I'm not only afflicted, I'm perplexed. But he said, but not to the point of despairing, not to the point where I would jump ship, giving up all hope. And then he says, notice, yes, I'm persecuted. I have people that are after me. I have people that hate me because I teach that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Because I teach this, there is an authority by which we can judge the cultures of this world. This is an absolute truth where we can say this is right and this is wrong and people are not going to like that. And so he says, I'm continually persecuted. People are trying to kill me, destroy me, run me out of town like they did in Thessalonica. But he says, notice, but I'm not forsaken. Why? Because Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, I'm struck down. The thought there is, I'm, I'm often knocked down in life's contest, but notice, but not destroyed. I'm not knocked out. God's always there to pick me up. And then notice this beautiful thing he says. He says, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Why? That the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Now listen, this brings it all together now. Here you are in this frail clay pot, susceptible to sickness and injury and wrong and hurt. Not only physical hurt, but emotional hurt, spiritual hurt. And God says, 
living in this world, you're going to get cracked. You're going to get broken. You're going to hurt. You're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because as you do, what others are going to see is Jesus in you. They're going to see the authenticity of your faith, that you do believe in him, you're trusting him. They'll see in the midst of that difficulty that he is your greatest treasure, that you love him above all others. And they will see that your hope is not in this life, but in the next. And they'll see the authenticity of your Christianity. Now, go to verses 16 and 17. This is beautiful. Therefore, Here's his conclusion. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed, renewed day by day. For momentary, don't miss this, for momentary light affliction is producing, circle that word, underline that word. It is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul is saying, when we persevere under suffering, when we, when we don't waste our sorrows, but we receive them as gifts from God, realizing he's working to accomplish his purposes, to prove our faith, to refine our faith, that he's also using that suffering literally, literally to produce glory for us in our future reward. That the suffering now as we persevere faithfully, continuing to love, believe, continuing to trust, continue hope, that produces something for us, a reward, eternal, eternal glory. Now, going back, going back to the Thessalonian believers, going back to our own lives, the point is simply this. Let's not make it complicated. Suffering and glory Tribulation and kingdom are inseparably linked. A believer's suffering, listen now, this explains verse 5. A believer's suffering is the evidence that God is just, that God's judgment is right. Why? Because it is the first part of the equation that guarantees the second part, that glory will follow. Therefore, when God allows his followers to suffer, they can know with certainty, you can know with certainty, glory will follow. And that's why we rejoice. That's why we rejoice. Now, what is the glory that awaits the believer? What is the glory? Look at verse 7. 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And to give relief. Isn't that the sweetest word? And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice, when Jesus returns, he will give his followers relief. That word uh, relief is really an absolutely beautiful word in the, in the Greek text. It expresses the idea of relaxation, of a loosening, of pre- an easing of pressure, of freedom. 
refreshment, restoration, rest. In other words, relief is the long-awaited rest from all suffering. He says, believer, there is coming a time when there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no persecution. There will be no affliction. There will be no sickness. I'm going to give you relief. And so that should give you hope today to persevere, knowing that as you do persevere, not only will relief come, but you're producing for yourself what? An eternal weight of glory for the next. But you know what is the best thing about our future glory? Listen now. This is good. It's not the absence of suffering, but it's the presence of our Savior. That's the best thing. Where then we do see him face to face. Look at verse 10. It says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Notice, when Jesus returns, he comes to be glorified, don't miss this, in his saints. When he returns, he comes to be glorified in, in his saints. The word glorified means to put Christ on display in all his majesty. It means for Christ to be recognized for all he is. Now, how, how will Jesus Christ be put on display in his saints? How will he be recognized for all that he is in his saints? Well, I think the answer is found in Philippians chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is, this is so beautiful. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. We're strangers. We're pilgrims here. From which also we eagerly wait Wait for what? We wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He returns, what will He do? Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now listen, beloved. Listen, we will not only see His glory, we will reveal His glory as we, the church, receives the ultimate makeover. We will be transformed into the most beautiful, the most pure, the most radiant, the most glorious bride that has ever existed, a bride for Jesus Christ, to be forever one with Him, to enjoy an eternal romance with Him, and to fulfill our destiny to reign at His side as His queen, queen to the Lord of lords and King of kings. But there's one major difference in this wedding. You know, in weddings today, typically the bride captures the spotlight, doesn't she? But in this one, all eyes are on who? The groom. 
on Jesus. Look again at verse 10 where it says, He will be what? Marveled at. He'll be marveled at among all who believe. We'll admire Him. We'll just sit there just gawking at His beauty, at His radiance, at His glory. Now, before we close, just look briefly, look briefly at the stark, stark contrast in the retribution for unbelievers when Christ returns. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then verses 8, 8 and 9. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. For every person who does not know God, for every person who does not obey the gospel of our Lord, for those who ridicule and afflict His followers, they will only get a brief glimpse of Christ's glory. Only a brief glimpse of His radiant bride, the bride that they mistreated. Only long enough to be banished away from the presence of the Lord. To suffer the penalty of eternal punishment in hell where they will be forever haunted by that brief glimpse of what could have been theirs. So as we wrap up today, I know many of you are believers. What's the message today for you? It should be one of great, great, great encouragement. It, it should change your theology on suffering <laughs> as you realize that God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. And that our suffering is evidence of God's justice, that His judgment is right, as He uses our suffering as a means not only to prove the authenticity of our faith, love, and hope in Him, but also to refine, to develop, to strengthen our faith, love, and hope to prepare us, to make us fit for God's kingdom and our destiny to reign and rule with Jesus. We should find encouragement to realize that in God's economy, the pathway to glory is always through suffering. So I don't know what you're going through right now. I know what many of you are going through. I mean, I know all. But I know there are many in this church family that are hurting, that are suffering from many different angles. And you should be encouraged to realize 
if God is allowing the suffering, His intent is just to produce greater glory for you when Jesus returns. And that's why we rejoice. God, thank you for proving the authenticity of my relationship. Thank you for refining it. Thank you for giving me that opportunity to display you to others, my faith, love, and hope in the midst of my struggle. And again, I, you know, let me just stop. I, I just noticed Jeremy, and I often use Jeremy, and I do it for a purpose because he's such a wonderful example. There's everything we've been talking about. For the sake of our guest, one of the greatest athletes that ever came out of this Bi-City area, played Division I football, was known as the Georgia Assassin, Assassin. came back to this area to coach football, coached high school football, struck with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. You see him back there? He's in a wheelchair with a trach, can't talk any longer, has to use special devices to be able to communicate. And this church family has just seen Jeremy over the last years just deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate. But in the midst of his deterioration, we've seen Jesus. God has used that, not only in his life, but his wife's life. And you know what his wife is going through right now in her battle with cancer and their children. God's used it to what? To prove they're the real deal. You couldn't doubt it because we've seen their belief in Jesus. We've seen their love for Jesus. We've seen their hope. We've seen how God has used us to refine them, to take, her, take them deeper with him. And as they've been taken to, to what? Display him. There have been hundreds of young athletes in this community that have come to know Jesus because of that testimony. Because God has used the backdrop of their suffering, that dark backdrop, just to display the brilliance of his glory. And they can be guaranteed that if God is allowing this depth of suffering, he's just producing for them an eternal weight of glory when he returns. Now, folks, if God can do that for that old knucklehead back there, he can do it for you. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever hurt, whatever pain, he can do it for you. Now, if you're an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, If you continue to turn from Jesus, if you continue to walk in rebellion, here's reality, and I love you enough to tell you this. There's a coming a day when you'll stand face to face with the glorious Jesus, with his radiant bride right next to him, and you will be banished away from his presence forever to a life where there'll be no meaning, no purpose, just constant agony and pain, eternal punishment in hell. But I want you to know that does not have to be the final word. Now look at me, listen to me, if you're an unbeliever. Jesus loved you. 
Jesus came to this earth to die for the penalty of your sin. That penalty that we see meted out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He took it upon himself. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God. When he died on the cross, all that you've done, all that you are was placed on him. He took your judgment for you. Because he was a perfect sacrifice, when he was buried, the grave could not hold him because the devil had no power over him. And he rose again, and Jesus Christ is alive. And he's offering, extending to you the gift of forgiveness. If you will simply turn from your sin and what the Bible calls repentance, you're just turning from running your own life, doing your own thing, you turn to him, asking him to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins, take control of your life, and then you can have the same glorious destiny that we just talked about, of being part of that radiant bride of Jesus Christ to where we will marvel we will wonder, we will admire at the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, move in our hearts. Let your word do its work. Father, for those who know you and that have been shaken and made anxious by present trials and suffering, Lord, may this message give hope. May this truth be an anchor as they see that your judgment is right, that you are just, that you're only using that suffering to both prove and refine their faith, to provide a platform to demonstrate to a lost world the reality of Jesus in them. And may they never lose sight of the fact that if they're suffering now, your intent, your purpose is only to produce glory for them later. And so may they find strength to endure. May they find reason to rejoice even in the midst of the hurt and the pain. And Father, for those that would be here that do not know you, that have refuse to submit to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, be that power at work in their lives. Open their eyes to your love, to the wonderful gift that you gave us in the person of your son, Jesus. How he took their punishment for them so that they need not be judged. And Lord, draw them to yourself. Draw them to yourself to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as they would place their faith in you, to love you, to put their hope in you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.